welcome to this edition of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's show, my guest is Al Ewing. He is the writer of The Immortal Hulk. For 2000 AD, Al was a regular writer of Judge Dredd. For Marvel Comics, he wrote The Mighty Avengers and Loki, Agent of Asgard, and New Avengers, plus lots more. For Dynamite Entertainment, he wrote an arc of Jennifer Blood and also The Ninjets. Now on The Immortal Hulk, he has teamed up with penciler Joe Bennett and will team up again for a future issue with his fellow creator and artist on Loki, Agent of Asgard, Lee Garbett. And all the covers are painted by Alex Ross. Al has transformed the Hulk into a horror comic book, going back to his origin in the first issue by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He is no longer the, quote, dumb Hulk, but a smart, conniving force of vengeance and retribution. If you like what you hear in this interview, rate and review on iTunes. Even if you don't write a review and just leave a star rating, it goes a long way to help the show and spread the word of the great creators that are guests on it. And subscribe, it's free. That way you don't miss a single interview because the show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and on Amazon Dot and Echo devices. I really did enjoy this chat with Al because I learned a lot about what he has planned for the Immortal Hulk, what he has planned for the book, no filler issues, that's for sure, only special guest artists and no crossovers interrupting his story. Does that have your interest? Well, wait until you hear the rest. My conversation with Al Ewing, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Glad to be here. Your book, The Immortal Hulk, that you're writing, is a hit. That's good to hear. I mean, you're in second printing. Second printing for the first issue. Second printings are always good. There's a level of security that comes with uh, knowing that you're down for a second printing. <laughs> and there might even be a second printing on the second issue, which just came out. Well, I can confirm that people have said there is. I've heard it from like two different places. I'm kind of too busy writing the comic to kind of like bug editorial about whether there's a printing. I've seen it reported that. You know, there is for the second issues. I was looking over the shoulder of the shop owner of uh, my LCS, and they said, oh, there's a second cover for the uh, second issue already. I said, oh, really? <laughs> and it hadn't even come out yet. For some reason, it's really grabbed people. I don't know if uh, people are excited to have Bruce Banner back or if the, the tone resonated. I'm very happy and grateful that, uh, that so many people are, are reading and enjoying it. Well, you hit on many things about the Hulk that really does resonate with a lot of people, and we're going to go through that. Believe it or not, there are people I know that don't like the Hulk for whatever reason, and I don't think they've looked at the Hulk for a while. And I recall reading way back, it goes even further back into the 90s when Jim Lee was doing an Iron Man comic. The Image Guys came back and did a special year-long run of a classic Marvel heroes. And he said, well, the, the Hulk doesn't have any motivation. And I was like, really? And that's why he put him in Iron Man. So I thought, well, that's really weird. But I think if we talk about the Hulk and your treatment of the character, we might change some minds here. So let's start with your background on the Hulk. When did you first read the Hulk? It's actually, it was so long ago, it's so early on that it's, um, that it's actually really difficult to remember. For me, superheroes can be divided into, and I mean, I guess all fictional characters can be divided into sort of two basic types. There are the type that you come across for the first time, and you're like, 
wow, this is brilliant, or meh, or, you know, whichever, however you react to them, you remember coming across them for the first time. And then there are the fictional characters just osmose into you. It's like you just kind of absorb them, like um, Dracula, Frankenstein, Sherlock Holmes, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, the Hulk, you know, Wonder Woman. The Hulk is one of those. I cannot remember the exact order of events. I know there were a number of, like, childhood exposures to the Hulk, as if he's some kind of virus. That like, uh, but there were a number of like childhood exposures to the hog, but I cannot quite remember the exact order it came in. I was born in 1977, so you know the Hulk TV show. It was sort of part of the public consciousness. It, um, I don't think it was as big a thing in Britain as maybe it was in the States, but it would have probably been on the telly. I think certainly it would have been uh, in the culture. The you know David Banner turning into Lou Ferrino. That I would have known about. There was the Hulk cartoon in the 80s where Rick Jones wore a cowboy hat and nobody knew Bruce Banner was the Hulk. And I definitely owned a VHS tape at some point with a few episodes of that on it. There was a Hulk annual... No, not a Hulk annual, a Marvel annual. Uh, And when I say annuals here, I'm not talking about the American sense where they're like oversized comic issues. I'm talking the big hardback book things which kind of come out roughly at Christmas every year. The Beano, I think, still does one every year. Viz does one every year. Viz being not the manga imprint, the satirical British comic for grown-ups. That featured a reprint of like the end of the first issue, so this kind of primal Jack Kirby stuff, and the Hulk versus Mongo Gladiator from Space early on in kind of the fourth issue. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was sort of being exposed to the basic idea of the Hulk, the kind of basic Hulk smash Hulk talk in third person, you know, when Bruce Banner, when his pulse rate goes up, he goes through a cool transformation sequence and becomes Hulk. I was getting exposed to that kind of classic thing. I was getting exposed to sort of the Kirby Hulk. I think it was later I found in the school library, and I've talked about this in the back matter of Immortal Hulk 1, I found this kind of pocketbook of very early Hulk adventures, the first six issues ever. So that was like Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, and even at a young age, they seemed to be flailing. It was like... He was changing his vibe, you know, every issue, every half an issue. It was, like, astonishing. But, you know, as a kid, you're just, like, fascinated by this. You don't think in terms of, like, I don't know. I feel like even at that age, I had a kind of understanding that these were things of another time. These were, like, pieces of history, and the same rules could not be expected to apply. It just fascinated me, because obviously it filled in the blanks for that from that Marvel annual I was talking about earlier. To wind up this long, rambling (laughs) rant about, you know, first Hulk bits, the way I was introduced to the Marvel Universe as a universe was Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars, the the toy tie-in miniseries. It was reprinted in the UK. I think the first issue had the whole of the first American issue, and then it was like chunks of issues with backup strips, like chunks of Alpha Flag. Chunks of the old Iceman, Jam de Mateus miniseries. A really just eclectic introduction to um, all of Marvel. That was when I really got into it, because, you know, it was an issue one. It was a jumping on point. I was already reading Spider-Man comic, except then it turned into Spidey comic and started reprinting the old Electric Company strips. And all of a sudden, it was, like, way too young for me. You know, I kind of kept up with that anyway, because I didn't understand what was going on. It was just like, wow. The writing's really deteriorated. Why does he split up everything he says into like three different balloons? It's it's almost like he thinks I don't know the words. What words mean? 
But yeah, that I you know, but I you know I kept up with that for like five weeks or something. <laughs> Spidey comic, you know, without and there was a Hulk comic as well. But I think by then it had finished. To cut this enormously long, rambling, boring story short, <laughs> there were so many like vectors for the Hulk to just get into my head. And and he was one thing I do remember is that he was my favorite superhero when I was a kid. The Hulk was my favorite superhero, and it's like you know he was one of the more famous ones. He was no Superman. He was no Batman. He was no Spider Man. He was just this sort of big green weirdo. It's one of those characters that everybody seems to know, whether they follow comics or not. Probably in part because of the TV show, also because his character itself, the way he looks, is so memorable. He's incredibly visually distinctive. There's been a lot of talk about color theory of like most superheroes are red, yellow, blue, the primaries, most supervillains sort of green, purple. And Hulk is this big blob of green and purple, this big two color thing, you know, standing amidst all the more primary colored superheroes, you know, you're standing next to Captain America, you're standing next to like Wolverine and his yellow and blue, Spider-Man, you know, he stands out. So, yeah, he's Matt Mobile. When I read the uh, the introduction at the end of the first issue about that pocketbook comic that you found at the library, I laughed because I have the same pocketbook that I bought <laughs> off the rack when it came out. And I thought it was so oh, cool that all six issues, the first six were in there. So I got this. And I, like you said, they, they keep changing up what they're doing with the Hulk with every issue. And I'm like, wow, they're all over the place. And I didn't, I had no knowledge of this beforehand. Issue three is like easily my least favorite out of the six. It's such a wrong turn. And they know it because they just double back almost instantly. <laughs> well, I found it interesting to see that early take of the Hulk. The first comic book I was read was a reprint of Journey into Mystery 112, which is a classic battle between the Hulk and Thor. They're telling a story of the Avengers number three when they're fighting the Hulk and Submariner, and then Thor is explaining, you know, people are asking, who's stronger? This is the one where it starts off with kids in the street holding up these little wooden placards exactly. with Thor and the Hulk's face on them, like this kind of torchlight rally for the superheroes. And if you want to get a feel for like a terrifying-looking Hulk... One panel I never forgot that always left a very deep impression on me was when the Hulk, it's a half-page panel, he's pouncing on Thor, and he's got this wild look in his eyes, and his hands are out. That is scary looking. Is that the one where he's shouting, I don't get weak, I get stronger, stronger, stronger? That's the one. And this is still a very thinking, smart, speaking Hulk, not the dumb Hulk. Yeah, I have this Tumblr, which I kind of started up again, and I basically turned it into a place where I just reprint old Hulk panels that are of interest to me in order. And, you know, for various reasons, I'll, like, shove little tags on them, like, uh, you know, Hulk is scary, Hulk is violent. I sort of categorize them into, like, little little things that are kind of relevant. That's one of the panels that really leapt out at me, and it's one of the ones I used. Uh, one of the tags is, it's a horror comic, and that is one of the ones that I as I remember, I put that tag on because that's a horror moment. That's a, that's a horror beat. I mean, I know this was all happening in Thor's comic. I think even if it had been happening in Hulk's comic, we'd be sort of rooting for Thor a little bit because the Hulk is just so out of control. And another great image of the Hulk was, uh, I think it was Fantastic Four 12. He's hiding on the corner from the thing. He's ready to pounce on him. That's another, another cover. Yeah, that's the cover. Any yeah. second now, I'll destroy them all or something like that. Right, and that's, yeah. You know, team-up issues with heroes do not generally start out with one of the heroes like, I'm going to kill him. Do you think Kirby had probably the best take on the Hulk in terms of making him look terrifying? You can make arguments for a lot of other artists. The person who worked with Bill Mantlo on the issues where Hulk's at the crossroads. Oh, Busima, Sal Busima. Sal Busima. 
Um, but it's inked by somebody. The way Holtzface has done in those issues, got more lines, more wrinkles, mm-hmm. his sort of teeth are kind of bigger and wider. The way he draws Hulk there with Bruce Banner kind of out of the equation as this sort of, this animal, this kind of mindless creature, that was very creepy to me. But in general, yeah, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a scarier day-to-day Hulk than Kirby's. Other people that worked on the Hulk, I mean, I liked Marie Severin's work in the early issues when the book came back in its own series, and then, of course, Herb Trimpey took over. And one of the books I found when I was a kid, we were having dinner at a Chinese restaurant, and I was like 12. And I said, I'm going to go to the bookstore next door and see if I can find some comics. So I wasn't really just getting into comics then. And I went to this bookstore, and basically it was a front for an adult bookstore. <laughs> but in the, in the front, there were like four or five comics, and they were all like five or six years old. But they were just sitting there. I guess they were old stock. And there was a copy of The Hulk, 151, and I have it here, The Crawling <laughs> Unknown, which is a kind of a horror-type comic, right? Oh, and yeah. And I said, how much is the book? And the guy looks at it and says, it says 20 cents. I said, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's a little worn, but I was like, cool. It was a really uh, terrifying Hulk comic book, again, with the horror element. And I think that's what you're pulling out of The Hulk that we haven't seen in a while is that horror element and bringing in some of the best elements of the television show. Yeah. The reporters in there got the wandering Bruce Banner going town to town. Yeah. I've got a bit of a confession to make at that point. I've not seen that much of the TV show. So a lot of this is kind of based on impressions of the TV show, things I've sort of read or been like told about. With Jackie McGee, with our Jackie McGee, she's pretty much a completely different character. She's just got that resonant name. And I thought a reporter character following the Hulk writing the story, I thought that was a really good idea. It's something I kind of, I sort of heard about. It's not something that I was like, I love this old TV show. I want to kind of, um, you know, bring it back in some form. It's more sort of, it's a cheap trick in a lot of ways. It's taking advantage of these sort of nostalgic resonances to kind of buy a little goodwill. When you kind of hear about stuff secondhand, it's often like everything gets boiled down to like the primal essence of it. If I'd watched a lot of episodes with Jack McGee in them, I'd sort of probably have this like idea of his personality. Apparently he's quite smarmy, quite sort of greasy, is that? Kind of like a muckraker type. And, you know, that might sort of infect the characterization and as it is jackie uh has basically been allowed to sort of grow her own character and it's much more something for the comics something based on the world of the comics where the hulk is a known quantity and you know we'll find out down the line that not to spoil too much but jackie was in a hulk event in her youth that informs her view of the hulk and her kind of her idea of the Hulk. I watched the Hulk TV series long ago, and I've watched a few more recently with my son who was interested. I haven't really sat through a lot of them because one of the things that always bothered me was that he never had a big baddie that he went up against that he was equal to, except there was like one two-part series called The First where he fights another Hulk-like creature. I heard about this, yes. Yeah, that one looks good. I don't think I've ever sat through it all, but you've pulled out the essential elements David Banner, as played by Bill Bixby, I think the earnestness with which he played the character was probably the best part, plus the transformation and that sense of wandering from town to town rather than having a rogues gallery per se. It was much more of a, you know, trying to find himself, trying to find a cure. We're keeping the wandering. We're sort of, I think where we differ strongly is that we're kind of coming from the premise that there is no cure. 
mm-hmm. like not even death is a cure. That this is now such a chronic condition that Bruce Banner will never be free of it. That's definitely part of where we're coming from. It forms part of where we're going. A lot of this is me kind of thinking, what happens if we take certain well-worn story components off the table? Is the hero in danger of his life? You know, well, the Hulk's just come back from being dead, so (laughs) at a meta level, you know, the readership aren't going to be fooled with that one. So it's much more like, is Bruce in danger of losing himself? Is he okay? Should we be worried? Uh, What's the deal with the Hulk now? How, you know, what's he like? We don't know yet. You know, I know, but the readers have yet to find out. And for the people that haven't read the series, explain to them what's different about this Hulk, why he's called the Immortal Hulk. Uh, he can't die. Basically, Bruce Banner can die, the Hulk can't. What we establish in issue one, and we're trying not to go back to this world too much. We're trying not to make it like a death of the week kind of thing. What we kind of come back to is... Bruce Banner can die, but if he's dead, then when night falls, it's the Hulk who gets up again, and the Hulk remembers. And, you know, the Hulk will go looking for revenge. We're kind of also establishing the idea that the Hulk is kind of always inside Bruce, sort of looking out and nudging Bruce. He's sort of, he's more in the driver's seat than he's ever been before. To a certain extent, issue two is a look at a Bruce Banner who has kind of surrendered to the Hulk a little bit allows the Hulk to kind of push him around, essentially, in a way that, you know, long-term readers might be worried about. I know there are a lot of readers who are quite annoyed with me that I'm sort of saying that Bruce Banner might not be the most decent human being in the world. But it's like the same is true of any of us. We're none of us 100% decent people. I think it's good to have sort of Bruce Banner add that element of uncertainty that he might be backsliding, that he might be getting worse, that he might be... He might not be as in a healthy place, even for him. It fits in with the whole concept of the Hulk being somewhat of a Jekyll and Hyde character too, because Mm. Jekyll and Hyde, Dr. Jekyll wasn't this perfect, upright standing individual. He had some lusts beneath the surface that he wanted to have an excuse to reach into by being Mr. Hyde. He wanted to be that. So you're kind of playing with that. Yeah. We're coming towards like the, I want to say like the 55th birthday ish, roughly around that time. And in that time, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether the Hulk is a completely separate uh, soul, a separate being. I know that was a direction like early on and in the seventies, they sort of pushed that, you know, they had a lot of, We're just now getting up to the bits where, to the stories, on that Tumblr I mentioned, we're just now getting to the stories where, like, the Hulk is separated from Bruce Banner. There's all that discussion about, is he a separate person, or is he part of Bruce Banner? I've always lent to the, especially since the Peter David run, I've lent towards the idea that he is, he's a part of Bruce Banner, he is. Yeah, he might be a separate personality, but he's a personality that is part of a whole. Bruce Banner is all of these things. I think it makes it more interesting. Versus just yeah. a strong separate character, a, a strong superheroic character, seeing it more as two sides of the same person, and they're linked. You know, it's not a clear division between them. It starts to yeah. blur. Like one's motivating the other. And when the Hulk comes out, there's a sense of vengeance. He's picking up where Banner left off. What Banner wants to do to seek justice. Yeah, but he's very judgmental. He's very kind of. Um, he's this very sort of punishing force. This kind of. Um, Almost this like this Old Testament force, this kind of great eye that like looks on you and judges you. We we added a thing in. I've sort of seen the occasional tweet. This isn't actually a new thing. I thought it was new, but we put a 
than almost Mr. Gosper. We have the thing where the Hulk sees ghosts. That's been around for a long time. But we've sort of expanded that a little bit to his other senses in that he can smell if you're lying. At the time, it was kind of like an interesting thing to do, a way that he could maybe track people. But also, I thought it was kind of interesting to like giving a concept kind of physical properties, like the idea of like being able to smell a lie. There's something quite creepy about that. Well, it's very primal. It's very animal-based, um, kind, of, yeah. kind of the id part of Banner that can sense that, that can smell that, because he's much more animalistic but intelligent, though. There's an animal thing, but it's also like a kind of magic. There's something about the way we ended up putting it that the whole can smell a liar it's almost like a folk saying we're leaning slightly into the idea that the hulk isn't a hundred percent scientific see i say something like that and it's like i know there's a section of people listening who will take that to mean that we're gonna like do like the spider totems or whatever we're gonna like we're gonna make it a big continuity <laughs> revelation i'm talking strictly thematically as far as i'm concerned you know hulk still came out of the gamma bomb in thematic terms yeah we're dealing a little more with the mystical the magical that side of things there have been a lot of great stories over the last few years about the Hulk as a kind of a scientific force, a scientific monster. It's about time to sort of swing into the other direction a little bit and look at the Hulk as a kind of mystical being, in a sense. One of the things that is so terrifying about this version of the Hulk is that before, with the dumb Hulk, Hulk smash, there was always a lot of collateral damage, a lot of just wreckage. Now, it's more the judgmental side of him that he's coming after you that's more terrifying what he's going to do to you to make you pay that's something we definitely wanted to to emphasize in the first to an extent in the second and third as well it sort of pops up in the fourth you can't run from the hulk you can't get away he's going to come after you things are kind of planned out until i want to say about issue 15 now at some point i would like to really have a good old-fashioned somebody just on the run we don't want to tell the same horror story every time because we did a kind of the Hulk is coming for you in one. If we keep doing that, it gets stale. Did you approach Marvel Editorial to do the book or did they approach you? The sequence of events as I remember it is a little of both. At the last writer's room I was at, which I think was January of last year, there was talk in the air of bringing back the Hulk from the deck and how that would happen. And that was a beat that eventually ended up in Avengers No Surrender. We kind of sat down in a room, just the three Avengers writers at the time. If you've been following the back matter of Avengers No Surrender, you'll have, you know, you'll have read about that particular writer's room. But um, at some point in one of these writers' rooms, and I think it was the big one, I'm pretty sure I stuck my hand up and said something about maybe the Hulk just doesn't die. Maybe we don't need a kind of catalyst or an excuse to bring him back, he just comes back, because that's more of a frightening thing. I don't know if that's kind of the most exciting thing that you can kind of say out loud. It's like, what if nothing happens? It's like, um, <laughs> but I, I kind of held on to that, and I sort of pushed for that in the No Surrender thing. I kind of took charge of the Hulk in that. I think I made it pretty clear to like Jim and Mark that I really wanted to like do the Hulk beats. And at the same time, I was sort of saying to Tom, you got any big plans for the Hulk? Because I'd really like to do a Hulk book. And Tom was sort of going, well, you know, we'll let you know. And then they did let me know. They kind of said, we're taking pictures for the Hulk. And there's quite a few people. Like, I don't know exactly how many. Tom Brevoort, he was very good about saying, like, look, I'm not going to tell you who else is in the running for this. All. But there are other people. So you might put a lot of work in and then get knocked back. If that's an issue, I'm just letting you know up front. You know, I, I like, did the best pitch I could. And it kind of got down to, like, 
almost like a sort of second audition. You know, I remember Tom said that he, he really liked the tone. He really liked horror tone. He thought the original plot I had planned was too much of a, a Hulk plot that people had seen before. I think I was still playing it quite safe, playing it fairly like... I think Tom's Tom's sort of feedback was like, trust yourself. Give me this comic that you're... You're talking about this comic tonally. And the comic you're talking about tonally, I feel like it's more interesting than the kind of the plot beats... I mean, that said, issue one, issue two, issue three, they were all pretty set in stone. It was, it was around issue four that things started deviating a little bit. I think that was, oh, I can't see, I'd, I'd have to go back and look through all my notes. I think Sasquatch came in with the second draft. That was around when the sort of one below all aspect came out, uh, which is a thing that has been mentioned in the solicits and hinted at very slightly in issue two. And I won't say any more about it for now, but it's... Um, it's definitely a big bad for sort of the first year or so or you know the first like 13 issues now let's talk about your penciler joe bennett he's doing some of his best work that i have ever seen he is amazing and yeah he's he's done one of those quantum leaps that artists do every so often where you think they're already great and then they just turn around and become much better in a way that you just kind of shocks you because you thought you know, they're already fantastic. And then, like, suddenly they reach this upper level. I remember um, Jamie McKelvey, who's a friend of mine, that thing in The Wicked and the Divine, where he went back to a scene from issue one in one of the very recent issues, and it's up to something like issue 30-something, issue 40-something now. And he went back to, like, that scene, and, you know, he had to redraw it. He couldn't just, like, take the pages. And, and his style has just evolved so much and it was already amazing but you know you can see looking at the two the same scene drawn twice you know with like years separating them you can see the evolution an evolution that back at Wicked and Divine issue one you know you couldn't have seen that happening you couldn't have predicted it because he was already so good and Joe is the same he was already great you know a master of of that style of comics that kind of realistic style it's reached this other level that's extremely exciting to work with. And coming up on issue six, you have Lee Garbett doing the art. Yeah, that's fun. The old gang back together again. Lee's, Lee's fantastic. He's delivered uh, a bunch of uh, layouts, and I think he's working on the actual pages now. So are Joe and Lee going to alternate story arcs, perhaps? No. The way we're treating guest artists is we're sort of making them special guests. It's mostly Joe. I think the current plan is after Lee, there's going to be a relatively uninterrupted stretch of Joe. There are some flashbacks in Nine, and I might give those to a different artist too, both because it's thematically, it'll be thematically good. I can't really say why it'd be thematically good because that's a spoiler, but uh, there's a particular artist I've got in mind who I think giving him half the issue would A, it'd give Joe a break, and B, it'd be good for the comic for that particular issue. I think it'll be much like issue three where we have Joe does the framing sequence and we have a whole bunch of guest artists. So Joe would do like everything set in the present and then we'd have flashback pages, which would be this other artist. Like I say, that'd give Joe, you know, a short rest. A comic that comes out with the kind of regularity that this is planned for. This is something like three issues every two months. Artists are going to need breaks and, you know, there's no way around it. Pretending otherwise is absurd and we want to make those breaks we want to make them special you know issue three is this smorgasbord of 
amazing artistic talent. Um, we have Leonardo Romero, Marguerite Sauvage, I want to say Paul Hornschmeyer, and we have uh, Gary Brown. All of these four do like, they just take a little piece because it's kind of Rashomon issue. And they do just amazing, phenomenal work. I was just blown away by every single one of them. And then you've got Joe doing the framing sequence. His command of expressions, I think, has just kind of become this thing of beauty. And then with Six getting Lee on the book, it was a personal thing. I wanted to work with him again. I also know there's a lot of people who'd like, you know, who remember us with fondness and want to see the team back again. If we do have somebody in on issue nine, I want that to be a special treat. I never want the reader to feel, oh, this isn't a quote-unquote real issue. Because that, I mean, A, that's super insulting to the guest artists. And B, it's like I've made a decision not to do any tie-ins at all with Immortal Heart. No tie-ins, because so many people go, oh, I skipped the tie-ins. You know me, I'd have a tie-in every, like, four issues. They were all packed with, like, vital plot bits, but people were skipping them because, you know, they were tie-ins, therefore they were fill-ins, you know, therefore blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I really don't want to give people an excuse to kind of... So every every guest artist issue, you know, these are special guests. We want these artists to be fated. We want, like, coveted spot. Hopefully it will be. But So it'll be Joe alternating with a galaxy of stars, <laughs> essentially. Now, do you have planned, somewhere in the back of your mind, an annual issue that you might do in the future? Uh, funny you should ask. There's another promise that I'm sort of skirting right up to the line on. Because the no tie-ins thing, it suggests no guest appearances in other books. But that is not a promise I can make, if nothing else, because you can't have a book that everyone loves and then lock that character off from the rest of the universe. You know, you can sort of offer guidelines, but it's like people are going to want to write him and people should write him. I think with a Hulk annual, the promise is no matter where else the Hulk appears, you can have a an order for Immortal Hulk, and that is all you need to enjoy Immortal Hulk. That's everything. There is no important plot stuff. That will happen outside of Mortal Hulk. Bless you. <laughs> That's great to hear. <laughs> Might be some like great stories, because there will be great stories featuring the Hulk that happen outside of Mortal Hulk. So completists, you might want to track down everything. But uh, on the other hand, if you're on a budget, waiting till annuals or specials come out on Marvel Unlimited will cost you nothing in terms of enjoyment of the main book. I feel like that's a promise that I should keep, which it puts me in an odd position regarding any annuals. I think an annual or a special, not that I will confirm or deny there are any plans for that sort of thing, I think it would be thematically interesting and exciting. Hmm. Okay. It'll be a great story. I don't know, an additional sort of cherry on top that you could do without, you could wait for. But at the same time, we live in an era where, like, things matter with a capital M to continuity. And I kind of hate that because I think every story should matter or essentially not matter. You know, you, this idea that you're kind of forced to pick up a comic because it quote-unquote matters. And if you're not forced to pick it up, it must not matter or it must be, like, filler. It's this weird balancing act where kind of... I don't know, maybe over decades, superhero readers have been sort of trained in ways that don't really benefit anybody. We're getting into some kind of office politics at this point, I think, in terms of, or hobby politics, uh, not politics politics, but kind of hobby politics in terms of like, quote unquote, right way to read. I would be walking a fine line 
with that annual in that I would want people to like not think of it as filler, but at the same time, I don't want to force anyone to read it. So it'd be this kind of Schrodinger's thing where like it both matters and doesn't. It's an odd one. It's a tightrope that I think we're going to learn to walk as we go. But I think as long as it comes from that place where if people don't want to buy any comic that isn't Immortal Hulk, we are happy to cater to those one comic readers. Too many times I've been burnt people using tie-ins as jumping off points. It's really unfair to kind of say, oh, you better buy this other comic. It's like, no, you know, you've got your order for the one comic. That's everything you need. That's your complete story. Anything else is optional extras. Al, do you have a favorite Hulk villain? Because one of the things we talked about earlier is that he's on the move. It's more introspective about himself. He doesn't really have a rogues gallery per se because he's not really like a superhero. The only villain that comes to mind for me is the leader. There's the abomination as well. I mean, it's those two, really. One thing in common, I think, with the Hulk's villains is they're all sort of distorted reflections of him. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, the leader is the Hulk except with brain instead of brawn. Abomination is, he's sort of more monstrous in a way, except when he started out, certainly he was, because he, he was a filthy cummy. Yeah, he's sort of veered between kind of more monstrous. There was a time when he was physically monstrous but sympathetic. And then he killed Betty. And, you know, that was the kind of monstrous act which, you know, the Hulk was not capable of. So, again, he's back to this sort of more evil version of the Hulk. In the Paul Jenkins run, he was sort of swung back on the outside to being more sympathetic, but he'd still done this terrible thing. He was acting sympathetic, but it was all an act. The Abomination is a really complicated character. The leader is probably my favorite classic villain. Um, I, in, in a lot of ways, the Hulk is kind of his own villain. The Hulk is sort of Bruce Banner's bad guy. Reading through all the early stories, it's kind of amazing how often the beat comes up of people uh, tricking the Hulk or attempting to, or like offering friendship and then sort of laughing behind their hands that they've duped, you know, the foolish monster. They use them, yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a kind of parade of villains who do that. I mean, it's all the Tyrannus, he's, he's a Hulk guy, but he's basically just a kind of budget mole man. Um, <laughs> you know, except his thing is that he's incredibly handsome and insecure about it instead of very ugly and insecure about it. The Hulk is your focus right now. Yeah. Are there other characters you want to write someday, or will we perhaps see them appear in The Immortal Hulk? Well, Sasquatch. The trouble is, oh, are you going to put any of your old favorites into Immortal Hulk? I'd like to, but they're not a tonal fit. If somebody guest stars in Immortal Hulk, it's not great for them. Sasquatch is guest starring in Immortal Hulk, and it doesn't work out well for Sasquatch. It's like Walter does not come out the other end of it a happier person. Does he come out the other end of it at all? According to the solicits, maybe not. I'd love to write more of the characters that I have written. Lightning Guy, that would be fun to do. I was kind of hoping more people would want to use the Blue Marvel. So, you know, if nobody else does, then I might have to bring him back for like more than a guest appearance. Tony was the breakout character from US Avengers. And I'm very fond of her. And again, she's sort of popping up here and there. At some point, I'd like to kind of pick up the the dangling plot threads I left if nobody else does. But in terms of characters who I have not written, it's a bit of a tough question because all of the biggies are being written by co-workers, friends and co-workers. And it's basically to say like, oh, I'd really like to write Doctor Strange is saying like, I really hope Mark loses his job soon. <laughs> and like, and I, they pick me 
uh, which is like a really kind of horrible thing to say. Um, it's at some point in the far future, you know, having a crack at Doctor Strange might be interesting, but you know, when once Mark's done, once he's told all the stories he wants to tell, I wouldn't mind being like next in the queue in like five or ten years or whenever he's finished. The weird thing is, I never, up until quite recently, up until like last year when I got that beamed up my bonnet about the Hulk coming back from the dead, I never really wanted to write the Hulk because I didn't really know what to do with it. And now I have very clear ideas of what to do with him because, you know, he died. And that gave me my springboard and, like, the situation changed. A lot of the time, like, me wanting to write characters, it's extremely situational. I want to write how characters react to the situations they are currently in. Uh, I don't really have, like, a kind of, here's what I'd do with Captain Ultra. If somebody said, we want a Captain Ultra series, uh, what have you got? I'd go away for a week and I'd like think about it and I'd come back with something. Or if Captain Ultra was in a situation and he'd been sort of left in a status quo that I thought was fascinating and I really wanted to get into. I almost feel like wanting to write particular characters. It's almost like putting the cup before the horse a little bit in that it's not really how it works. Editorial have you in mind. Maybe they have several people in mind like with the Hulk, but they will have you in mind for like a particular character. And pretty much most of the gigs I've got at Marvel have been somebody ring me up going we've got space on the docket for a so-and-so series and we thought you might have a good take on it what's your take and you know like i say who knows who else they've talked to but i probably need a bit more power is maybe the wrong word that sounds a bit weird i don't feel like i'm in a place where i can sort of walk up to like any of the big wigs and say hey <laughs> i'd love to write wolverine and like you know no, I don't think I don't think that's how it works. Okay. Well, now I have some fun questions I like to ask all my guests. Yeah, sure. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I used to write comics for rest and relaxation, and then it became my entire job. So now I have other things. Um, I I play a fair amount of games. You know, I watch TV. I cook. I go for walks. I mean, cooking is just you know it's an essential part of the day. But uh, and going for walks is more like to come up with ideas, to get some exercise, to kind of recharge the batteries. In terms of actual fun, computer games is the biggest thing. I kind of tend not to go in for, like, the the shooters and the sort of the Twitch games and the um, the things where you're yelling at somebody over a microphone. <laughs> I don't like that. don't like that at all. That's, you okay. know, that's not my bag, Daddy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, at the moment, I'm sort of... I've got back into The Sims, a casual gamer. I play The Sims a lot. I sort of have room in my life for like one game at a time. I don't really have that much gaming time because obviously, you know, the writing takes up quite a lot of my day. If you've got like an iPhone or a, a smartphone or tablet or something like that, uh, Steve Jackson's Sorcery is worth your while as an adventure game. It's adapted from an old set of like fighting fantasy style game books. It's adapted very well for the medium. It's very much a tablet game. It's really like interactive fiction that like makes use of the tablet's memory. It's like the Telltale games, you know, people remember stuff. Actions can have consequences like way down the line. It's a really good, really well thought out game. The same company did 80 Days, which is another one that is absolutely phenomenal. 
hours of enjoyment. It's as much like reading a book as it is like playing a game. And I guess I've also got a console, and on that, I'm sort of waiting for the next Hitman installment, uh, waiting for the Spider-Man thing. Yeah, I guess games-wise, I like things that don't require too much in the way of reflexes. Kiss. I don't have that capability. <laughs> okay. Well, thinking back to when you were a teenager, you know, 12, 13, yep. what kind of posters or pictures did you have on the bedroom wall? And what kind of music were you listening to at the time? Oh, boy. Well, let's see. When I was when I was very young, I mean, if we're talking preteen, on one thing I do remember having on my wall, and this is fun, is like a cardboard kind of Hulk deco thing. And it was poseable. It was this thing where like all the limbs were kind of put together with little fasteners so they kind of turned around on an axis so you could like pose it a certain way and then blue tack it up on your wall in a particular pose and i had a smaller one that was spider-man but the hulk was the big one uh, so that was on my wall aside from that i didn't have much in the way of posters i was never a big never a big poster person i guess uh, i guess i didn't like to sort of wear all my likes and dislikes out on the wall for anyone to see, for my parents to see. Musically, oh, I guess I would have been into all the great bands. Against, like, uh, the Pet Shop Boys, very much into. Apart from them, more songs about... I was into The Smiths for a while. I'm not a big fan of Morrissey these days. He turns out he's a gigantic racist. Before he was talking to anybody, I liked his songs. So Johnny Marr, Johnny Marr is still right on. Um, the Smiths I liked. Petra Boys, there was, there were kind of individual songs. It was the sort of era of like um, uh, the Communards. I remember a few, a few things. The Diversion, Don't Leave Me This Way, I was, I was quite into. Similarly, Jimmy Somerville's Small Town Boy, uh, an amazing song. A New Order, doing like Blue Monday, I remember when it came out. That was pretty exciting. As I got slightly older and into my teen years, I got quite into the, uh, the rave scene and more kind of the toy town techno like trip to trumpton by the smarties remains a particular favorite ebenezer good and then you know you kind of drop into orbital uh, the orb little fluffy clouds the biggie would be the petrol boys that's certainly one that i've got most of their catalog kind of you know saved so i can listen to it whenever i want i'm sure you have a lot of books too yeah and I wonder if you were stuck on a deserted island and could only have one book with you. It could be a graphic novel, a prose novel. It could be a collection of books, a part of the same series. What would that one book be that you would want to have with you? <sighs> this is, I mean, if I'm allowed to take an entire series, then all of Richard Stark's Parker novels would keep me going for a very long time. If it's got to be just one book, then... So it has to be some huge omnibus thing. I've got a book of five Philip K. Dick novels smashed together that I quite like. If we're talking graphic novels, Grant Morrison's new X-Men omnibus, or if there's like a Doom Patrol omnibus, those are both old favourites of mine. Those would keep me happy for a while. And they're big enough that I could use them to kill small animals for my food. Now, if a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? Or accessories, some sort of box to hide in. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Probably, God, probably a laptop or something. Depressingly, it's like <laughs> a laptop in a bag. It's the thing I kind of take everywhere with me, either a laptop or an iPad. Any sort of holiday I go on, I'll bring that with me. Horrifically, it'll, it'll probably be that. Okay. And what would be your beverage of choice 
when you're resting and relaxing? Uh, I drink a lot of coffee uh, in the mornings, but uh, it's probably, I hate to say it, it's probably like the brown fizzy, Pepsi or a more kind of supermarket-owned brand thing. I drink way too much of it. It's not doing me any good whatsoever. Uh, I do need to cut down. But it is something that keeps you going while you're writing. So uh, that's my main vice uh, at the moment. I am trying to sort of swap it out for something like coffee, which will give me that caffeine rush without filling me full of, you know, sugar that then doesn't go anywhere because I'm sitting down all day. All right. Very good. Final question. And this one is a bit more difficult. Okay. What is the one question you would like to be asked by an interviewer that you have not been asked before? Something you want people to know about you that they do not know. I, that is a very difficult one. Um, this is kind of predicated on the idea of me wanting people to know things about me, which is <laughs> is kind of the reverse of how I operate. I kind of prefer to like um, let the work speak for itself. I'm quite I'm quite Ditko-esque in that regard. Um, I guess what a good charity was, or like. Give me an excuse to kind of promote things like the top of my head, like the Trevor Project. That's a good one. And what is that? It's a non-profit organization focused on suicide prevention efforts for LGBT youth and questioning. It is a helpline. They've got a toll-free telephone number, the Trevor Lifeline. They do take donations. Um, I believe you can find them online. That's something... If people ask what's a charity you can think of off the top of my head, today it's that. Tomorrow it might be a different one, but a nice additional thing for interviews. Thank you, and I'll put a link for that charity in the show notes. Now, do you have any con appearances planned over the next several months? Oh, quite a few, actually. Uh, in August, I think there's a day in a library in Manchester that I think I'm going to. I think that's still being sort of organized, but I think it's pretty set in stone at this point. In September, there's in Spain, I believe it's... a Vieg is how it's pronounced. A-V-I-L-E-S. And there's a sort of comics festival there that I'll be at if you're sort of in that part of Europe. Uh, and then after that, in Leeds, uh, England, there's the Thought Bubble Convention, which happens every year. That's right in my backyard. That's like a short train journey away from me. So I always go to that every year. I don't know if I'm DJing this year. I do. I have been DJing every year there's been DJing up until this point. In fact, I think me and Kieran Gillen started the tradition of comics people DJing. Then in October, there's New York Comic Con. I'm going to be an artist Sally for that one. I'm on the website this time. There's no mistaking. And I think after that, I'm in Derry in Ireland or Northern Ireland. No apologies to any Irish people if I've completely got that wrong. <laughs> uh, where I'm going. I'm pretty sure I'm down for that one. And I think that's it for the year. So it's there's quite a few in different countries. It's the most international year I've had in a long time. I was meaning to do Seattle this year, but I didn't manage to get a table in time. And then some family stuff came up, so I had to skip out on that. And, you know, I just had one of those tickets that's basically, you know, for wandering the halls anyway. So I wasn't on the website. Nobody would have missed me. Um, <laughs> this is the thing I've learned about the American convention. If you want people to know you're there, you've got to have a table. It's not like Britain where you can just turn up and, like, signings and people will know that you're wandering around you've got to have a table so i do want to do seattle next year but i need to keep an eye on the artist alley of it all and sort of make sure that i've got a table there i know america is a very big place and not everybody can go down to new york i'd like to do a sort of middle american con at some point or canada i'd love to go to canada i've never been to canada never and like a lot of my favorite online people are from canada so 
you know, I want to see the country that birthed them. Uruguay is pretty much any festival type thing that wants me, I'll go to. I've been to one in Greece before. That was lovely. I've been to one in Lille in France. The thing about European comics festivals is that they treat you so nicely. They sort of expect a lot from you in that I think both times I've been to a European festival, I've had to do talks. And obviously the language thing means that I have to brush up on my languages so as not to be very rude. But they really do treat you very well, though. They kind of take you out for meals. If you're a comics professional and you're offered a slot in a European festival, then, um, you know, the hospitality, it's worth doing it alone because they are so nice. Spain is going to be another one of these, I think. Well, all right. Excellent. You are a busy guy. Yeah, no. And just to remind folks, the Hulk number two, the Immortal Hulk number two, came out on July 4th. So hurry if you want to get a copy. And the second printing of number one will be out on July 11th. And then we can expect the third issue in August. And they all have the wonderful Alex Ross art covers. I think the third issue is earlier than August. Oh, wow. Really? I'll tell you what's happening. Well, you did say three every two months. So. Three every two months. It's like a one-issue month and then a two-issue month. So okay. you can probably expect Hulk issue three to be, depending on when this drops, maybe as soon as a week away. But like two weeks from issue two, basically, I think is when you can expect it. Okay. And then issue four will come out in August. So don't don't wait till August <laughs> to, like, to go to the comic shop for issue three. I mean, ideally you should have a standing order or a pull list. Absolutely. Uh, because pre-orders, we could have a long conversation about the pre-order system, which would probably get me in trouble. But, you know, <laughs> sad to say, sad to say pre-orders do still matter. Yes, they do. If you do love a comic, it is worth letting the retailer know because, you know, it helps them, it helps you, it means that you're not sort of stuck waiting for a second printing or anything it helps your local shop if you let them know you know or if you have a pull list or um we call it a standing order in this country have comics set aside and go and pick them up on a regular basis because if they're just sort of gathering dust in the drawer then that's also bad for the shops absolutely comic shop etiquette <laughs> it's a whole thing yes it is al i want to thank you for being on creator talks this week thank you for having me on it's been a pleasure so I'll run down those dates one more time. Second printing of issue number one came out July 11th. The next new issue, issue number three, comes out July 18th, so that's next week. And there'll be a second printing of issue number two, like we said. That comes out July 31st. Coming up next week, Andrew Maxwell. He's the writer of Rum Row, Aldous Spark, and a new one coming up, The Baldy Tales of Laszlo Kale. And that's going to be a new Kickstarter. Join us next week to learn more. But thank you for joining me this week. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I'm mainly on Twitter. The handle is at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. I also have an Instagram account. There I post my Saturday Silver Age comic from my personal collection and my Sunday Bronze Age comic from my personal collection. Occasionally, I'll have a Golden Age comic in there as well. By the way, I did see the Ant-Man and Wasp movie this week. It was fantastic. I rated 5 out of 5. I would definitely go see it again. It was a lot of fun. I'm not going to spoil it here, but if you want to chat about it through email, I do have an email. It is contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. If you want to drop me a note about the movie or anything else that's on your mind, that's the best way to reach me. Thank you for listening. Until next time.